To, the title for this lesson today is Christ, the prophet like unto Moses. Now, so far, we have touched on a little bit of how Moses is a type of Christ. You know, this study is Old Testament Christology. So um, we, we've done that here and there, but we've never really done it thoroughly looking at his whole life. You know, from his birth to his death and even afterward, <laughs> how he pictures Christ. And I wasn't even going to do this, but as I'm studying the scripture, it led me to this point. And you'll see why as we get into it. Led me to this point where I thought, you know what, we're going to develop a whole lesson on Moses as a type of Christ. So that is the main part of this first lesson, Christ the prophet like unto Moses. Well, after, if you remember where we left off, and by the way, when we come back, it's going to be March 17th, so I expect instead of red for Valentine's Day, what are we all going to be wearing? Green, Green for St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> unless you don't want to. <laughs> you can come dressed as a leprechaun. All right, after beholding the magnificent manifestation of Almighty God through both natural and supernatural phenomena on Mount Sinai, while also at the same time hearing the thundering trumpet-blasting voice declare a summation of his moral laws in the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, the Decalogue, that's what we looked at last time, the Ten Commandments. After hearing all that, you know, God speaking audibly from, from Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were trembling. They were trembling so much that they, it says, they removed themselves from the foot of the mountain to stand afar off. You see that in verses 18, and it's repeated again in verse 21. Look at 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And again, down 21, the people stood afar off. They didn't need a barrier anymore. Remember when God said put a barrier around the mountain to keep the people from crossing over and touching the mountain, that barrier was no longer necessary because the people quickly came to realize their unworthiness to be anywhere near God's holy presence. One thing they realized that day was the holiness and the power and the omnipotence and the awesomeness of God. And so they were so afraid, <laughs> they were so fearful that he might do that again, that he might again directly speak to them, that, and they would be consumed. Look at verse 19. It says, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. They were scared to death that if he did that again, they would be just, you know, crispy critters. They would be consumed. And so what did they do? They begged Moses to continue to be their mediator. And they promised that they would listen to him. In other words, they would heed him. Did they? No, not for very long, but this is what they promise, of course. Now, in a parallel account, which is over in Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we learned, remember I asked you this question? I said, now, was God, do you think God was pleased with that response from his people? And you all said, no. You know, when they said, no, we don't want to hear from you again. 
Let Moses be our mediator. Well, listen, was God, and you said no. The other Bible study said no. I asked my husband, he said no. But you all were wrong, weren't you? (laughs) And I would have said no too. But when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, we find out, yes, he was pleased. He was very pleased with Israel's request. And he told Moses that the people spoke well. They spoke well, and he actually wished that they would always have such fear unto obedience. He was pleased with their reverential fear of him. And he said, if they were always like this, it would be well for them and for their children forever. So his positive response to Israel's request for Moses to continue to be their mediator, we find when we go to yet another place in Scripture, which is Deuteronomy 18... Verses 15 to 18, we find that his response to their response included a prophecy, a very famous prophecy. It was on this very occasion that God gave Moses the famous prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, which says this. This is God speaking to Moses. I will raise them, that's Israel, I will raise them up, a prophet from among their brethren, you know, Jewish, Hebrew, like unto thee. He's talking to Moses, so the prophet's going to be like who? Going to be like Moses. And he says, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them, unto Israel, all that I shall command him. Then in verse 19, God included a very serious warning. He said, whoever would not listen to this coming prophet like Moses, this coming mediator, would suffer divine judgment. Now, the Jews have understood almost from the very beginning that this is a messianic prophecy. What does that mean? A prophecy regarding the coming Messiah, the Savior. You know, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman. They have understood this was speaking of him. And so this is what led me Because we're told here that the Savior, and we know he's Jesus, would be like Moses. So that's what led me to think, this is the time to talk about how Moses is a type of Christ. And he definitely is. We have this verse to tell us. And we have other things in scripture, too, to tell us that. We know that on several occasions during Jesus' earthly ministry, the people, the Jewish people, actually wondered out loud if he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So they did understand this prophecy to be messianic. Remember after he fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish or whatever it was, which way, was that right? Five loaves and two fish? (laughs) And he fed the 5,000? And after that amazing miracle, they asked him, this was in John 6.15, they asked him, are thou that prophet? And they're referring to Deuteronomy 18.15. Remember when John the Baptist, and they were trying to scratch in their heads trying to figure out who John the Baptist was in John chapter 1. And they asked him, essentially, who are you? <laughs> who are you? Are you that prophet? And what did he say? No, no, not at all. Yeah, basically, I'm not even wor- worthy to loosen his sandals. But uh, so they understood this property, property, uh, property, prophecy to be messianic. Israel's reverentially fearful request for one of their own, 
meaning one from among them, a descendant of Abraham, and at that time, of course, it was Moses, to be her God mediator was ultimately realized in the one Moses imperfectly typified. Can any person in Scripture in the Old Testament perfectly be a type of Christ? No. So there's many ways he is a type, but many ways he isn't a perfect type, of course, because no man is perfect like Christ. But we do find that following the Lord's resurrection, Peter gave his first sermon. Remember, on the very day of Pentecost, he gave his first sermon. Bumbling foot-and-mouth Peter suddenly was an eloquent preacher. And included in that sermon, he, um, he testified that this Deuteronomy prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. And then we have Stephen and his one and only very powerful sermon in Acts chapter 7. So powerful that they killed him. You know, he was brilliant. He used typology. He understood what we're studying. He understood typology. And so he goes through the Old Testament and he talks to them about how Joseph. You know, Joseph was rejected by his brothers when he first went to them, didn't he? Wasn't he? Thrown in a pit and everything. And the second time... He was accepted. They bowed before him and realized who he was. And he even says the second time, because he's pointing out to the Jews, as he's in the Sanhedrin giving testimony about Jesus, he's pointing out to them that it was like, you guys have been like this all along. You've always rejected your prophets and your, you know, deliverers the first time. But the second time you accept them. And he showed that with Joseph. And then he went on to tell about Moses. And he said in Acts 7 that um, Moses was, again, the fulfillment of this Deuteronomy passage. And he pointed out how he, too, was rejected the first time he tried to deliver Israel. Remember when he killed the Egyptian? And, uh, <laughs> and that backfired. He, shouldn't, he went around it, about it the wrong way, didn't he? in his own flesh. But anyway, he was rejected the first time, but the second time he went back to, to his people in Egypt, they, he did deliver them. They followed him out. So that's what Stephen was doing. And he, again, so we're on solid ground when we say that Moses is a type of Christ because we not only have the prophecy and we have the Jews understanding it, but we have the testimony of both Peter and Stephen. Jesus is the supreme prophet of God. Supreme. He is the true spiritual redeemer and the one mediator between God and men. So by piecing together the three scripture texts, am I jumping the gun? Oh, no, that's okay. When we put together Exodus, and that's what you have to do with scripture when you study scripture, don't you? I mean, it takes you all over the Bible. You've got to tie it in because this story about uh, the Ten Commandments and what happened afterwards is repeated over in Deuteronomy. So you've got to read both of them. And then that takes you over to Deuteronomy 18. And so you jump all over the Bible. But when we piece together those three scripture texts, we find that at the very time that the Lord initiated the giving of his law, and he initiated it with the Ten Commandments, but then he goes on to give the rest of the law. But at the very time he began giving the law, he also evidenced his grace by giving further revelation about the promised Savior. That's what we find throughout the Old Testament. He gives a little bit of information in the garden, right? I'm going to send the seed of the woman, going to crush the head of the serpent. And then he tells 
uh, Abraham a little bit more about how he's going to be from his descendants, you know, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. And he just gives progressive revelation. So here, right after giving the law, he gives further revelation about the coming Savior, the Messiah. And he says he's going to be a lot like Moses. You'll recognize him because he's going to be like Moses in many ways. You know, Moses actually surpasses in typology Joseph. A lot of people will say Joseph is the the greatest type of Jesus in the Bible. Well, actually, if he was, why didn't God say, I will send a um, man like Joseph? He didn't say that. He said, I'll send a prophet like Moses. Moses, and we're going to do that today, you'll see all the ways from his life to his death, etc., how he pictures Jesus. It's amazing. I never knew that. I always said Joseph was the greatest, and now I've changed my mind. It's Moses. Depends on what I'm studying. (laughs) I was like Daniel until I studied Stephen, and then Stephen became my favorite. Anyhow, Israel, like all of us, needed a Messiah. She needed a Savior because Israel consisted of sinners. And guess what? There's one thing you can count on with sinners. Sinners always break the law. Right? Sooner or later, and it's usually sooner. I mean, we know when Moses came down with the law on the stone tablets, they were already breaking the law, weren't they? So at this point, and and that's why they needed a savior. All right? So he gives the law, and then following it, he gives this little message of grace about the coming savior you see it It was the same way in the garden right after adam and eve fell first thing god does is tell them about the promised savior i love that so anyway at this point in our christological study from the book of exodus i want to review the many ways in which moses pictured jesus christ and can you imagine moses when he first heard this from God, when he heard God say that he was going to send a prophet like him, who was so powerful that disobedience to him would result in divine punishment? Remember Moses, what kind of guy he was? Remember when God first called him from the burning bush? Did he want to go? <laughs> no. He tried to get out of that so badly. He gave all kinds of excuses. He says, I can't speak. I stutter. You know, don't do, don't send me. Send my brother Aaron. He tried to get out of it. He was the meekest man. Uh, we're told he was extremely meek. And so he must have been absolutely shocked to hear this prophecy. The Savior's going to be like me? you got to be kidding. Well, and he would not have realized at all all the many ways that his life from his birth and his childhood experiences, etc., his, his, his character, his personality, his difficulties, his rejection, his miracles, on and on, even sort of his death and all that, all of those things from his birth to his death, how they all pictured the Savior promised to Abraham, for all, Adam and then Abraham and the patriarchs. He wouldn't have gotten that, would he? But we have the advantage of hindsight. So we can look at the life of Moses and we can look at the life of Jesus and we can put this together. So here we go. (laughs) Besides Christ, 
Moses is the only descendant of Abraham to have fulfilled the three divinely anointed offices of prophet, priest, and king. We know Moses was called a prophet because we just read the prophecy about him being a prophet, you know, Christ being a prophet like unto him. A prophet is one who speaks for God, and Moses definitely spoke for God. He also performed the duties of a priest in, uh, when the tabernacle is built. We'll see that. So he was also a priest, and he was a king. You can read about him being called a king in Deuteronomy 3, verses 3 and 5. The email lesson will go out this afternoon, and you can see all these scripture. Everything I say, I might not back it up with a verse, but in the email lesson, all the verses will be in parentheses behind whatever I say. Furthermore, Moses, like Christ, was a judge. Remember how all those people had to stand in line (laughs) to get his opinion on different matters or whatever would arise, and it just was too much, and his father-in-law, Jethro, said, you can't handle this all yourself, and so they appointed 70 elders to help him, but he was a judge, just like Jesus is the judge of all the world, earth. One day he will sit on that throne at the great white throne judgment. Who sits on that throne? Jesus. That's Christ sitting on the throne of judgment. He was a deliverer. Of course, Jesus is a deliverer. He is our deliverer. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years in Midian. Jesus is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Moses was a mediator. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. Moses was an intercessor. Remember when he was interceding when they were fighting the Amalekites and he interceded on the behalf of his people a lot with God. Please spare them, God. God, you know would like to wipe them out that time but Moses interceded on their behalf Moses was a special servant of God as of course Jesus is God's servant with a capital S the suffering servant of God both Moses and Christ were kinsmen redeemers Moses was the head of Israel Jesus is the head of his church through Moses God made a covenant with Israel called the Mosaic covenant Through Christ, he made a better covenant with Israel called what? The new covenant. Moses was a unique human prophet in that he did not merely speak God's words, but he had a very, very special fellowship with God. In fact, in Numbers 12, God says this. He says, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, and with him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly. Elsewhere, in Exodus thirty-three eleven, God said he spoke to Moses face to face. So Moses was a unique human prophet. Christ is, of course, the unique divine prophet. John 1.18 says, he alone has seen God and has declared him. He has the very most special fellowship with the Father, doesn't he? Because he is the eternal son. And it doesn't get any closer than that. Well, Moses repeatedly passed between the camp of Israel at the foot of the mount and up at the top of the mount where he would speak to God, right? Up and down. And if you try to go through the scripture, you get confused how many times, up and down. Some have tried to figure that out. It's very difficult to try to nail it down and see exactly. It was pretty much, you know, a lot of exercise for an 80-year-old man. 
up and down. And some say eight times, some say nine times um, that he went up and down. Well, that is a picture, too, of Christ's equal access to heaven and earth, up and down. Had you ever thought of that? That's interesting. Both Moses and the Lord Jesus were, of course, Jewish by birth. Both of them, you're going to love these pictures. (laughs) I love Herod the Great's face there. That is evil, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Both of them were born at times when Israel was under the dominion of a hostile Gentile power. Of course, Moses was born when Israel was under the dominion of Egypt, and Jesus was born when Israel was under the dominion of Rome. As children, they both faced potential death from the decrees of evil rulers. Remember the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph made a decree that all the Hebrew baby boys born born to the Hebrew women were to be cast into the Nile River? And um, then, of course, there was Herod the Great, who had the awful decree that led to the slaughter of the innocents in, uh, in Bethlehem. Both, however, Moses and Jesus were providentially rescued, were they not? Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Talk about providence. <laughs> How ironic that he was actually adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. Wow. And so he had a mother, but no father. I'm talking about his relationship with Egypt. Of course, we know he had Jochebed and Amron as his real parents. But his relationship with Egypt, the world, he had a mother but no father. They say she wasn't married. I don't know. Um, Jesus was adopted by Joseph. He had a mother but no earthly father. A stepfather but no earthly bloodline father. Moses was born into an obscure family. But he became a prince and an heir to Egypt's throne. Remember, Egypt is a picture of the world. Uh, Jesus was born into an obscure family, and he is the prince of and the heir to the entire universe, isn't he? He's the heir of all things, it tells us in Hebrews 1-2. Early in their lives, both Moses and Christ understood their God-given missions. Of course, Jesus was a whole lot younger than Moses. Moses realized it when he was about 40. Jesus, we know, realized it at least by the age of 12, didn't he? Uh, They both forsook Egypt. Well, let me go back. They, They both willingly renounced their power, their wealth, their position, a king's palace. They both willingly did that. They both willingly made themselves poor. They both forsook Egypt. We know Moses forsook Egypt to befriend his own people, the Hebrews, who were slaves. When did Jesus forsake Egypt? Remember in the temptation in the wilderness when Satan, who is the usurper prince of this world, offered him all the kingdoms of the world without having to go to the cross? (laughs) Basically, it was a temptation to do that. And he had the right to offer it to him. And what did Jesus do? He forsook Egypt. He rejected that. Also, both of them were called out of Egypt, weren't they? They both were called out of Egypt. Um, 
Remember when Jesus had to go to Egypt to escape the, the decree from Herod. Now, although Moses was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was not ashamed, as I just mentioned, to identify himself with Hebrew slaves. Christ, it says in Hebrews 2.11, is not ashamed to call them, the Hebrews, the Jews, his brethren. Both men went first in their deliverance ministries. They both went first to the house of Israel, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. They both went first to Israel, but they were, of course, initially rejected by their own people. Uh, and we find that their deliverance work was accepted by the Gentiles. Remember when Moses left because he was rejected by the Hebrews? You know, who's made you a judge over us and a ruler? And so he left because they probably, when Pharaoh heard, would arrest him and kill him or something. So he fled to Midian, and the first thing he did in Midian that we read about was at a well when he delivered Jethro's daughters and that deliverance work was readily accepted so the Gentiles even though his own rejected him the Gentiles accepted him we know that Jesus was rejected by Israel as a nation but accepted by the church which is primarily Gentile Uh, of both men similar rejection statements were made by their own people Remember when the Israelites sarcastically asked Moses, I just said this, who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? And, of course, the Jews said of Jesus, we will not have this man to reign over us. After their first appearance and subsequent rejection by their own people, both Moses and Jesus disappeared from Israel. Jesus disappeared, didn't he? He ascended into heaven. Um, Moses went into obscurity. And in in the case of both of them, Israel presumed they were both dead. I'm sure they thought Moses was long gone, that he died in the desert somewhere. Wasn't the same thing true with Joseph, when you think about it? Didn't his brothers presume him dead? They they were really shocked when he revealed himself, because they thought he would be long dead. Um. Moses and Jesus each had a special experience with non-Jewish women at wells. Moses in Midian with the daughters of Jethro. And, of course, Jesus with a Samaritan woman. Both Moses and Jesus took for themselves Gentile brides. You know, Zipporah was a Gentile. The church, Jesus married a basically Gentile bride. Same thing with Joseph, Asenath. He had a Gentile bride. Isn't that cool? All of it, how it's a picture, picture, picture of what's happening in our day with Jesus and the church. Both Moses and Jesus were abiding. They were living with their Gentile brides during their absence from Israel. And during that absence, Israel suffered great tribulation, which could have been avoided if she had not rejected her deliverers, Moses and Jesus. Both men spent decades in obscurity, Moses in Midian 
and Jesus in a despicable little place called Nazareth. The ministries of both men began with confrontations with masters of evil. Moses' ministry began with great confrontation with Pharaoh. Let my people go. No. Let my people go. No. (laughs) And Jesus' ministry began with confrontation with the master of all evil, Satan, in his wilderness temptation. Pharaoh requested of Moses a miracle. Show me a miracle. Remember that? And he threw his rod down, turned into a serpent, ate all the wise men's serpents. Herod, Herod Antipas, this is a different Herod. He was the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, Herod Antipas. He requested of Jesus a miracle. Remember when Pilate sent him over to Herod? And he was just a thrill seeker. He just wanted to see something because he'd never seen a miracle. And he said, show me a miracle. You know what? Moses did show Pharaoh a miracle, but Jesus did not show Herod Antipas a miracle, did he? You know what? He didn't even speak to that man, that evil man who beheaded John. Both Moses and Jesus fasted for how many days? Forty days. They were both envied, as was Joseph. They were both um, unjustly accused. They suffered unjustly from the reproaches of their own people. The Israelites murmured incessantly against poor Moses. That's, that's what they were really, really good at, was murmuring and complaining. Murmur, 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 poor Moses. And at one point, they were ready to stone him to death. Well, did the Jews, the religious leaders, murmur against Jesus? Yes, no matter where he was, even out in a the cornfield. There they pop up and they murmur, 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 what are you doing feeding your disciples on the Sabbath day? They're always murmuring, and on two occasions, his own tried to stone him to death. Uh, Both men experienced the distrust of and the challenge by their own siblings. We haven't gotten to that in our study of Moses, but he was challenged by his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. And remember, Miriam was struck with leprosy. Was Jesus challenged by his own siblings? You know, you had four brothers and at least two sisters, because it says sisters, plural. Did they believe in him? Not until after the resurrection. And they, at one point, came to get him because they said, we've got to take you home to Mama. You've lost your mind. <laughs> uh, at one point, Moses said to God, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant that thou layest the burden of all this people on me? I mean, all the burden of the people was on, laid on Moses. Well, what does that remind you of? Christ bore our burdens, didn't he? He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Moses once said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. What did Jesus say? Come unto me. Come unto me. Moses is the first person in the Bible to perform miracles. I mean, yeah, Bible, Old Testament. He's the first person in the Old Testament to perform a miracle. Go back and look, and you'll see it's true. God performed miracles, but this is the first time a human. God performed a miracle through a human. Jesus is, of course, the first person in the New Testament to perform a miracle. John the Baptist never performed a miracle. Both men are associated with wielding 
a rod of mighty power. Both men demonstrated control over the sea. Jesus on several times. And once he walked on water, another time, peace, be still in the storm, instant calm. Amazing. And we know, of course, what did, what did uh, Charlton Heston do? <laughs> Moses opened the Red Sea. Of course, there's differences. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's some, we're going to get to the differences when I finish all the commonalities. And there's some very significant differences between Moses and Christ, of course. The Red Sea crossing is referred to as Israel's baptism unto Moses because it pictured the new baptism unto Jesus, Romans 6.3. Both men fed multitudes with bread. Manna. Jesus, of course, the feeding of the 5,000 Jews and the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. Uh, both men provided Israel with life-saving water. Both Christ and Moses are characterized by meekness. Both are characterized by great wisdom. And both are characterized by forgiving spirits. Both were men of prayer. Both were leaders over groups of 12. 12 tribes of Israel. 12 disciples. And also they were both leaders over groups of 70 the 70 elders who came to assist Moses. And remember when Jesus sent out 70 disciples? You remember that? Well, it's in there if you don't. <laughs> You're looking at me. <laughs> uh, both were engaged in healing ministries uh, and even concerning leprosy. Because Moses actually healed his sister Miriam of her leprosy. And we know Jesus healed lepers. Both washed their brethren with water. And I give you that you say, when did Moses do it? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you the scripture in your notes. You can look that up. Both men established commemorations to the Lord. Moses commemorated the Passover, of course, because God told him to. And then Jesus uh, commemorated the Lord's Supper, which was actually the Passover transitioned. Because they were celebrating the Passover when he transitioned it to the Lord's Supper. Both were faithful over God's house. Both Christ and Moses had significant events on mountaintops. One, Mount Sinai. Well, at the burning bush even with Moses. And then again up at Mount Sinai. And uh, Jesus, of course, at the Mount of Transfiguration. Both, uh, the faces of both men radiated with the glory of God. Remember, Moses came down and his face was glowing so much he had to put a veil over it. And Christ, of course, uh, now there's a big difference. I'll talk about that at the end. But he was, he was revealing his divine glory from the inside out there on transfiguration. Moses fulfilled his God-given commission when he led Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Christ fulfilled his God-given commission to lead all who believe on him to freedom from bondage to sin and death. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, he shall be free indeed. That's what I think about these inmates studying the Bible. They're captives, but they can be free indeed, even in prison. If Jesus sets them free, 
And, you know, he uses, remember how he takes that which was meant for evil and uses it for good? Sometimes people have to get somewhere like that where they just have nothing else to do and they turn to the word of God. Um, Both men knew the day of their deaths. Yeah. I mean, Jesus predicted it was going to be on the Passover. He knew. He said three days, blah, blah, blah. Did you know Moses knew the day of his death? Well, again, I'll give you the scripture for that. I don't have it in my notes, but it's going to be in your email lesson. Um, Both men reappeared after their deaths. We know Christ did in his resurrection and walked with his disciples and taught them for 40 days. When did Moses reappear after his death? Right here on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking with Jesus. Is there such a thing as resurrection? Oh, yes. Like Christ, Moses quietly suffered the reproach of his people. When reviled, he didn't revile back. Uh, Both men offered their lives for their people. Moses died so his people could enter into the promised land. Jesus died so all men can enter into the promised land of heaven. Now, Moses did not leave his people without first giving them a successor. Who was that successor? Joshua. Christ did not leave his people comfortless. And that word in the Greek actually means orphans. He was not going to leave his people as orphans. And so he, when he departed, who did he send? The comforter. He sent the Holy Spirit. Now, scripture tells us that no man knows where the body of Moses lies. I've been to Israel and I've seen a lot of tombs over there. You can go see the tomb of David and the tomb of Abraham and the tomb of um, Rachel and all kinds of tombs. But is there a tomb to Moses? Mm-mm. Deuteronomy 34, 6 says, no man knows where his body lies. And that was for a reason. Remember? Weird. But in the book of Jude, it tells us that Satan and Michael were actually fighting over the body of Moses. I wonder who won. <laughs> What happened to the body? Uh, But this is another reason why Moses is such a great type of Christ. Where's Christ's body? Will it ever be found on planet Earth? Nope. Absolutely no. Even if they could do DNA tests of all kinds of little bones and things, it will never be found because it isn't here. Where is his body? It is resurrected, glorified, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Well, the next time Moses was seen by humans after his death, he was talking face to face with the Lord Jesus. You know, God had said, you cannot go into the promised land. Sorry, Moses, you blew it when you struck that rock twice instead of speaking to it. Um, So your punishment is you can't go into the promised land, but God in his wrath always remembers mercy. And so did Moses get into the promised land? Yes, he did. He was there with Jesus, actually talking about Jesus's exodus. That's the Greek word. When they're up there talking, it says they were talking about his departure, Jesus's departure. But the word is actually his exodus. Who better to talk about an exodus than Moses? (laughs) Uh, While Moses was absent from his people in Midian, after they rejected his first coming offer to help them, 
Israel encountered an, a 40-year extended period of trials under the cruel taskmaster Pharaoh. And then finally, after those 40 years, extended years of trial, God, from the burning bush on Sinai, sent Moses back. This was his second coming. He sent him back to Egypt to deliver her. And this time he did. And she did follow him out. Well, likewise, one future day, the father in heaven is going to commission his son to return. He'll say, this is the day. Return to deliver Israel from her extreme affliction under the satanically heavy hand of the evil taskmaster named not Pharaoh, but Antichrist. We don't know his real name. And Christ will return, like Moses did, and Israel will gladly accept him, as Israel did with Joseph, and uh, she will follow him out uh, and enter into the promised kingdom, the, the millennial kingdom where Jesus will reign for a thousand years as king of kings and lord of lords. Well, even if, now let's jump to the first century when Christ came and the religious rulers couldn't stand him, and I'm sure they knew the scripture well enough to, to look at all the ways he did resemble Moses, um, and yet they kept rejecting him because they didn't like him and they envied him and all the other dumb reasons. But even if they ignored every other way that Jesus was like Moses, one thing they could not debate was that he was mighty in words and deeds. And Stephen, brilliant Stephen, pointed this out in his sermon. He said, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Was Moses mighty in words? The guy that said, I can't even speak. Yeah, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And look at all the words he spoke in it. He was mighty in words. Was he mighty in deeds? Absolutely. Not just the ten plagues of Egypt, but, you know, the making the bitter water sweet and all, all the kinds of things he did. So he was mighty in words and deeds, and <clears throat> the Jewish religious rulers could not deny that Jesus was also mighty in words and in deeds. Now let me read what Charles Spurgeon wrote, because this is really something to meditate on. He says, <clears throat> it is singular, meaning it is unique, that there was never another prophet like Moses mighty in word and deed until Jesus came. You will find no other prophet who did both. Mighty words, mighty deeds. He says, other prophets spoke well, but they wrought no miracles, or only here and there. While those who wrought miracles, like Elijah or Elisha, have left us but a few words that they spoke. But when you come to our Lord Jesus, you cannot tell in which he is the more marvelous in his speech or in his actions. He far exceeds Moses and all the prophets put together in the variety and the multitude and the wonderful character of the miracles which he did. End of quote. Isn't that true? 
That is so true. You go back and look from Moses to Jesus. There isn't any other prophet who was mighty in both words and deeds. Now, there are some distinct differences, of course, between the two, Christ and Moses. And this list I'm going to give you is not at all complete. You can probably think of other ways in which there are differences. But the first one is that all of Moses' power came from God. It did not come from Moses, did it? No. Christ's power, however, was his own. That is a big difference. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The glory of Moses on his face, what happened to it? It faded, didn't it? With time, it faded. However, Christ's glory remains. It says in Hebrew, his glory excels. Moses' first record, uh, first thing we read about Moses in action it brought death. First thing we read of his actions, he murdered a man, didn't he? Whereas Christ's first recorded act was actually his birth. Um, and he, he was born so that he could bring life, right? Didn't he voluntarily take on the likeness of human flesh, come through the womb of a woman so that he could bring this world life, not death? Moses was God's servant. Christ is God's son. Moses stood on behalf of his people before God. You know, he was their intercessor, their mediator. He stood on their behalf, but he could not save them. The Lord Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The law was broken by Moses. He broke it himself as a human being, but he also broke it, didn't he, when it came down. And that's such a great picture of how we all break the law. Uh, the law was broken by Moses. The law was perfectly obeyed and kept by Jesus. Moses' bread, manna from heaven, it really wasn't even his, was it? But that bread sustained life. Jesus is the manna, the bread of life that actually gives life sustains and gives life. Moses was present at the first Passover, wasn't he? Jesus is the final Passover. Moses spent 40 days on Sinai in the wilderness. Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness, but it was a completely different experience because Moses was up on a mountain with God. Satan was in the wilderness with who? Satan. I mean, Christ was in the wilderness with Satan. Both Moses and Christ interceded for their people in a position of outstretched arms. Remember Moses in the battle of, uh, with the Amalekites? Joshua was down in the battlefield and uh, Moses had to hold up his hands so that, uh, with the rod in it so that Israel would prevail. Um, and Jesus, of course, interceded on behalf of his people with outstretched arms where? on the cross well difference Moses grew weary didn't he and he needed assistance that's why he had Aaron and her to hold up his arms the victory of that battle down there was not his doing it wasn't Moses's doing that victory was totally the Lord's doing 
Christ's intercessory work, however, was accomplished completely alone. He didn't have John and Peter holding up his arms. He did it all alone, and the victory was completely his. So those are some, some of the differences. Now, in conclusion of our look at Moses at being a type of the Lord Jesus, it is very clear that Moses had a very special relationship with God that the common Israelites did not have. Through the various circumstances of his life and the direct revelation that he received from the great I am that I am, Moses not only became well aware of God's holiness, how could you not, you know, speaking to him from the burning bush and then going up to that mountain and spending 40 days on two different occasions with him, he understood the holiness and the judgmental power of Almighty God. But he also understood the glorious grace and provision of Almighty God. He had immense reverential fear of God, but that fear was based on love. You see, Moses loved God, and he knew God loved him. Remember, Moses was a murderer, and yet he knew his sins were forgiven. So he knew what it meant to be connected to the Lord on the grounds of grace, not on law and not on what is deserved. You see? And aren't you glad that that's the case for us as well? (laughs) We can have a connection with the Lord on the grounds of grace and not on law and not on surely not on what we deserve. My husband always says, you know what we deserve? Hell and Walmart. (laughs) He doesn't like Walmart. (laughs) I like Walmart even less than he does, because I always send him. (laughs) Well, in Exodus 20, 23, look at verse 23. God, again, as he had done in the first and second commandments of the 10, he again, in verse 23, uh, prohibited the worship of God, any other gods, with a small g, He also uh, prohibited the worship of him using an idol. And he specifically mentions in that verse gods of uh, silver and gods of gold. So then we get to verses 24 to 26, which uh, concludes the chapter, chapter 20. And we find that the chapter that contains the Ten Commandments... If anybody asks you, where are the Ten Commandments in the Bible? Your mind should always go to Exodus 20. Well, did you know that chapter 20 of Exodus actually contains 11 commandments? Because the chapter closes up with one more commandment. And it is called the altar commandment or the altar law. He says, let me just read it, excuse me. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, this is verse 24, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen in all places where I record my name. I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, see, first of all, he said an altar of earth, and now he says altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, that's cut out stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Wow, those are weird verses, right? 
Okay, the altar law. He says he wants um, an altar of earth or an altar of stone to be made for him. Now, it is really appropriate when you think about it that an altar is mentioned right after giving the law, the moral law of the Ten Commandments. This is an indication that Israel and all of mankind would fail to keep the law, even just those Ten Commandments. And therefore, they would need a place to offer sin substitutionary sacrifices in order to deal with this inability to keep the law. You get it? So the altar and the sacrifices are given right after the law here. And they, again, are types because the ultimate altar was the cross. And the ultimate sacrifice with a capital S was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, although the people, the Israelites, promised that they would obey all the Lord's commands, they were naive, very naive, in thinking they could, and he knew they could not, that they would fail, and they would fail miserably. So in his marvelous grace, we see his grace all over the place, don't we? Even in the law, even in the chapters on law, we see his grace. We see his marvelous grace, and he makes provision for her failure by an altar and by sacrifices. Now, God had special, specific rules on how he was to be worshipped. Man is not at liberty to design his own ways to worship God. Man is not at liberty to design his own ways to approach holy God. According to God's instructions, an altar for worship through sacrifices and offerings made to him was to be very plain. You get that? Plain and simple. It was to be made of natural materials like earth and stone. And he included these two altar rules, these two altar restrictions, which were no tools and no steps. No tools and no steps. You see, worshiping him was to be distinctly different from the ways that the pagans worshiped their false gods. You know, their gods of silver and gods of gold with all kinds of ornate altars, um, which were lifted high above the ground. That's why they always refer to them in the Old Testament as the high places. You know, King Hezekiah and the good kings would come along, and what would they do? They would destroy all the high places because they would build them up high. And God says, you know, his altars are just to be plain and simple and not, no stairs. Um, you know, they were called those ziggurats. Remember the first one was the Tower of Babel. All, uh, after, after all, his ultimate, let me go back to this picture, his ultimate earthly altar, that was hard to say, Um, was very simple. His ultimate earthly altar consisted of just two wooden beams, didn't it? Very, very simple. A cross. God's altar was not to be beautified by the skills of human hands. There was to be nothing about it which would allow man to bring glory for himself, for his handiwork. The only thing beautiful about God's altar was to be the merciful provision he made possible for sin. 
Stone altars were not to be hewn out of larger stone. If any tool was used to make it, then he says that the altar would be polluted. Why? Doesn't that seem strange? If a tool was used on stone or, you know, cut out of a larger stone to get the pieces of the stone, it, it was polluted. Well, the reason is because salvation is not by works of righteousness that we have done. This is why God rejected Cain's offering. Cain presented to God the fruit of his own labor, didn't he? What God demands is for sinful man to humbly come before him doing things, even if you don't get it and you don't like it and you say, I don't like a bloody sacrifice, blah, blah, blah. You do things his way. His way, which is by the shed blood of a sin substitute. All of it pointed to his son. That's why. Who would shed his sinless blood once for all, for all sin. Well, God gave another prohibition concerning altars besides um, no, no tools. He said, neither shall thou go up steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. <clears throat> so as with the hewn or decorated stone, steps are the works of human hands. Man thought originally he could climb his own way into heaven. You know, well, I can get to God my way. That was the first big united effort at humanism. We'll do it our way. That's what they did when they built that ziggurat at Babel. And what did God do? It's kind of funny. You know, they're trying to work their way up to him. And he is so high, high, high above them. It's just utterly impossible. And he looks down and says to himself in the Trinity, let us go down. <laughs> Those puny little guys think they can get in. It says in Psalm 2, he, he laughs in derision when he looks at all man's efforts to get to him their way. It's just foolish. It's such a waste of time. That's what all the religions of the world are. They're all work-based religions. What man thinks he can do to get to God, to get to heaven. All these work religions and humanistic efforts that men devise to convince themselves that they can attain heaven their way are foolish in the sight of God. It's utterly impossible for man to do that. It was him, God, in the person of his son who had to come down to man so that man was able, is able to go up to him. All self-efforts or works of man to climb to heaven only expose their nakedness, their shame. We learned this back in Genesis chapter 3, the chapter that records how sin entered into the human race. The first thing that Adam and Eve did after partaking of the forbidden fruit was to do what? They attempted to cover their, their shame, really. Their, their they un never understood they were naked before, but now that they knew good and evil, they realized they were naked, and they, they tried to cover themselves by the works of their own hands. They sewed together fig leaves, and, and that would never, ever satisfy the holy justice of, of God against sin. And actually, the fig leaves did not even satisfy Adam and Eve. Because they, as soon as, you know, they had the fig, they had those little aprons on. <laughs> and um, 
And then they hear the voice of the Lord in the garden, and he says, Oh, Adam, where are you? Do you really think you can hide from me? And Adam is trying to hide, you know, from the presence of the Lord. And when he was asked why, what does Adam say? He says, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. You see, he realized he was still naked in spite of the fact that he had a fig leaf apron on. You know, the works of his own hands. He still felt the shame, didn't he? He still knew he was a sinner in the sight of a holy God. So it didn't even help him. Every effort of man to climb his way to holy God merely exposes his shame, his own shame. You see, nakedness in the scripture is associated with the exposure of man's sinful nature in the presence of holy God. Now, there are commentators that also say that uh, the pagan priests didn't wear undergarments. And, you know, they had these ziggurats, (laughs) and they would go up, and as they went up, all the people could (laughs) look up their robes. Um, And it actually did. So God says, no, you're not going to have this in my you know, worship service, no nakedness, no pre. And he actually, um, when he, when he talks later on in the Bible about what the priests were to to wear, he specifically gave them undergarments. (laughs) You never know what you're going to study in the Bible, do you? The altar, I'm almost done. The altar of earth pictures the humble humanity of Christ. Whereas the altar of stone not hewn out by human hands, pictures his deity. You see, the altar of earth pictures Christ's first coming as a man. Man is made from what? The dust of the earth. The altar of uncut stones pictures his second coming. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of Daniel chapter 2? Where Christ is pictured as a mighty stone, not cut out with hands, by human hands, which speaks of his deity and his virgin birth. And that mighty stone comes from nowhere out of heaven, and it strikes that colossal image uh, that represents all the Gentile nations of the earth that have oppressed Israel. And where does that mighty stone land? On the revived Roman Empire, the ten toes made of uh, mixed clay and iron. And the whole thing just shatters and collapses, doesn't it? And uh, the wind comes along and blows it away. And then that stone, cut out without hands, grows and grows and grows. And it takes over the entire earth. What is that a picture of? Christ is that mighty stone... And he crushes all the world empires, you know, under Satan's dominion. And he takes over the earth during the millennial kingdom. That's what that is all a picture of. And so the altar of earth, first coming, humanity, second coming, deity. It's just, a, it's just all so perfect. The command of the Lord against making an altar with human tools or human-made steps were intended to teach, to emphasize the truth that man can do nothing to contribute to his salvation. He is simply to approach God based on what his mercy and his grace have provided as the means to atone for sin. Man is received into salvation fellowship with God based on faith 
and faith alone. Right? Faith and faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I am glad for that. I am so glad I don't even have to try to obey the law because I would fail within the next 10 minutes. Right? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the attention of your people. I promise them the next lesson will be much shorter. Bless the food we will partake of and bless our fellowship together. Thank you for this day that you have made, and may we be glad and rejoice in it. We love you, and now go with us until we meet again in a few minutes. For we pray, Jesus, in your name.